Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of Star Wars The Hybrid Podcast. In this edition, I'm going to delve into the beginning of the Rise of Skywalker novelization. I'm only going to cover the first couple chapters because there's so much to unpack and because I haven't finished listening to it, and I imagine a lot of you may not have finished reading or listening to it either. So I'm going to focus today on the relationship between Leia and Rey and the relationship between Kylo and the Emperor. So the novel for The Rise of Skywalker came out on Tuesday. Uh, I've been listening to it on audiobook, and I've only listened to the first few chapters, partially because I went back to re-listen to everything um, a second time so that I would uh, have some ideas of things to discuss on the podcast. Um, So far, it's really good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I am frustrated that it took them until March to release this when they started releasing advanced copies in February and, you know, we already had a ton of spoilers from the additional content that the book was going to offer. I've been trying to avoid those spoilers myself so I would still have some surprises and there are a lot of um, details to pick up on, you know, beyond what was what was shared uh, in some of those articles that had come out earlier. Um, It just kind of makes me wonder why they decide to wait until March to release something um, when, you know, people are going to be getting their hands on it (laughs) so much sooner. I think that for um, Force Awakens, the audiobook came out like three or four days after the movie was released. Um, And uh, I think that the digital uh, like ebook for the novelization came out too. And it was just the physical copies of the book that they held off on because presumably they didn't want to print those um, and have physical copies sitting out in the world for someone to, you know, steal and and uh, publish the details on. Um, but, you know, it really doesn't make sense to me why for digital content they have to wait this long after the movie is released to publish it, especially if things are going to be leaking out this whole time about what they contain. But anyway, those complaints aside, I have been enjoying listening to it. So let's delve into some of the details. Um, I want to focus today on the relationship between Leia and Rey and the relationship between Kylo and Palpatine. Um, And those are covered uh, quite extensively in the first couple chapters um, of the book. So looking first to Leia and Rey, that's actually how the novelization kicks off. You know, in the movie, we start out on Mustafar with Kylo, um, and then we go to Leia uh, training Rey afterwards. But the book is reversed, and the first thing that we get in the book um, is Leia and Rey uh, training together. Um, Leia talks quite a bit about her time training with Luke, which again is a big difference from the movie where we don't get um, to see Leia training much with Luke. You know, we don't see the flashback until a lot later on, and Leia doesn't talk much about her training early on. Um, So that's another big difference between the book and the movie. Um, We see Leia talking quite a bit about her experiences, and also, um, you know, we, we hear what she's thinking about those experiences as she's reflecting on it, too. Um, Leia says that she really enjoyed her time training with Luke, but that she chose another path. In the book, she doesn't mention at this point that that path had to do with Ben. And her sense that we see in the movie um, that Ben is, you know, going to um, going to fall when when she completes her training or I think, you know, she says she sees her uh, his death at the end of her Jedi path. So, um yeah, we we didn't get that explanation from Leia here at the beginning. She just said that she chose another path. 
And she says that when she made that decision, um, Luke was sad about it, but, uh, but understanding. And he also held out hope that she would come back and finish her training. And she explains that that's why she left him um, with her lightsaber, because she wanted to try to get the message through um, that he, uh, that she was not going to, you know, return to complete her training or decide to become a Jedi. Um, she left her lightsaber with him so that uh, there would be no doubt in his mind, but he still kind of kept on hoping, according to her. Um, she says that she has no idea where her lightsaber is now, which is interesting. Um, so, you know, from Leia's perspective, uh, her lightsaber is totally lost. She doesn't know that, you know, Luke has it stored away somewhere with the possibility of, of Rey receiving it. That's definitely not something that Leia was aware of, according to the novel. One interesting thing that, that um, Ray is thinking about during this whole interaction is uh, about Leia's use of the Force in terms of political um, powers. So the last Jedi novelization had some interesting content on how Leia uses her Force sensitivities to take a read on how everyone around her is doing. And it explains that that's how she was such a successful politician, because she can sense the room. She can sense, you know, are people on board with this idea? Are people afraid? You know, do they need... Um, to be reassured about something? Uh, do they have doubts that she can clear up? And she uses that ability to kind of take the temperature um, to really uh, succeed as a leader. And she doesn't, at least in that novelization when it's discussing this, she doesn't use her force powers to, you know, control anyone or to tell them what to think, but she uses it to understand what they're going through so that she can make sure that she's responding to those thoughts and those needs. Um, Ray in this novel says that, you know, it would have been so easy for Leia to force people to do things, um, who, you know, who were opposed to her, um, you know, her actions or her decisions and, you know, kind of hints at what could have been a darker side to this power. And it really made me think, you know, and a theme of this podcast back to the ideas that are coming out for the High Republic era. One thing that we've, you know, heard of definitely in Legends materials is that the Chancellor of the Senate uh, used to be a Jedi and like that, you know, it was consistently a Jedi who was leading the Senate. Um, pr presumably, you know, maybe the same Jedi master who leads the, the Jedi council. Um, and so it made me think, you know, could we see Jedi politicians, um, in the high Republic era and, you know, could they explore the, the use of both of these sides of the power, you know, kind of the more, um, benign use where, you know, you're using it to sense how people are feeling, um, and to respond to those needs or kind of the more malevolent, uh, side of, you know, actually using it to help um, control people, because certainly that would be a power that any politician would love to have. Um, I'm sure that Palpatine used that, although, you know, we we really haven't seen too much in, in um, the canon materials talking about Palpatine's control over the Senate. You know, I mean, I think the, the prequels and the Clone Wars series really show Palpatine um, using political power and, uh, you know, kind of the tools that any would-be dictator has at their disposal um, to take over the Senate. We don't see Palpatine kind of controlling it with the dark side of the Force. Like, the Jedi kind of hint at that, you know, and and Dooku says um, that the Senate has fallen under the, the influence of a Dark Lord of the Sith. 
but you know, it's not, it's never made clear that that is like a force ability, um, versus just, you know, a, a, a Sith has somehow kind of taken power. I'm sure that Palpatine used the force to control people. We just haven't seen much of it. Um, but certainly from the Jedi side, you know, if there were Jedi chancellors in the past, you could see them using both this kind of power that Leia has to read people and respond, um, with empathy or going into a a darker side. You know, certainly we see Jedi, um, use mind tricks to control people. So where's the line between it being okay to use a Jedi mind trick to make someone do something and using that for your political advantage in a political situation, um, you know, I don't, to me, the, the Jedi mind trick has always been kind of a weird power that maybe shouldn't exist for Jedis. Um, the whole idea that it only applies to weak-minded people seemed really elitist and um, kind of counter to the idea that, you know, we're all supposed to be uh, equal in the Force, where we're all part of this bigger thing. It's always seemed kind of like a, a weird uh, situation from my perspective. So, um, you know, I, I did kind of think as I was reading this that that's definitely something that could be explored in future Star Wars stories is how the Force kind of relates to political power in different situations. Um, one more thing on, on the, the mind control that I thought of is in the Rise of Kylo Ren series um, that I just finished covering on here, Kylo discusses uh, his ability to, um, you know, to enter people's minds and search for information as being an extension that Snoke taught him of the Jedi mind trick. So to me, that really reinforced how closely together um, these kind of dark and light side powers are. And I think that that's, you know, here in the novelization, talking about Leia's ability to be a leader, you know, hints at that kind of fine line between um, using that power for good and maybe crossing the line and having a good intent, but, you know, manipulating people in a way that isn't consistent with the light side of the force. Anyway, um, we see a lot of discussion in this part of the book around connecting to Jedi of the past, which obviously is a big theme in the movie, too. Um, Ray tries reaching out multiple times in this chapter um, and has no luck. You know, she's trying to reach out to Luke, um, which is interesting because they didn't have the best of relationships. <laughs> and it seems like... Uh, Ray hasn't talked to Luke at all during all of this time. Like, I think we can assume that when Luke sees Ray in the film on Octo, that that's the first time that they've interacted since, um, you know, since she left Octo and saw him alive for the last time. Um, I think that, that we can assume that. It's just interesting to me that, like, Ray is trying to reach out to him. She has a great teacher uh, in Leia who's still physically present in the Force. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's still kind of trying to seek Luke's guidance and approval. So that's kind of interesting. Um, Leia definitely mentions that she's been able to talk to other Jedi over the years, which is awesome to hear. Um, she says that she's heard many times from Obi-Wan with guidance and on fewer occasions even heard from Yoda. And I love the idea of Leia getting guidance and advice from Obi-Wan and Yoda, uh, over the years, you know, presumably while she was training to be a Jedi and then... I would assume afterwards as well. Why not, right? I mean, it's clear that, you know, Leia says um, somewhere here in the novelization that she's proud of her Jedi lineage. Um, you know, it just wasn't like her occupation to be a Jedi, but she still carried um, that identity uh, with her. Um, 
let's see, what else did I have in my notes here? Um, Leia uh, says that Ray is exasperating as a student, which is exactly how Luke found her to be, where, you know, Ray um, gets really easily frustrated when she doesn't pick up on something. And when she does pick up on something, she takes it for granted and doesn't realize that she's accomplished something. Um, and, you know, Le Leia says that Luke acted kind of the same to her. Um, Luke said that Leia was exceptional, but different from him. So she had some challenges, like he pointed out her footwork was not the best, but had other areas of strength, um, which makes sense, you know, and, and Leia says that she thinks that that lesson of her learning how they were different will help her to train Rey, because Rey is different as well. Um, there was a cool line from um, Colin Trevorrow's version of episode nine that didn't make it into, um, you know, the movie that we got um, since they started the script from scratch. Um, but it was something like, um, you know, you're not like my my brother or my father. You're something new. You're different. And uh, that kind of theme plays out here in the novelization, too. Probably just a coincidence. Um, but, you know, that that kind of theme is here as well. Um Leia also senses that that Ray has darkness inside her, and she relates that to Ben. Um, but it, you know, Leia recognizes that she made mistakes with Ben. She sent him away, um, and she also realizes that that Luke made a mistake. I think because Leia says she's not going to second guess her ability as a Jedi Master. You know, even though she's not the most qualified uh, in history, she's not going to second guess her abilities. And I think she's reflecting on on Luke's mistakes um, of you know failing Ben and then being afraid to take on Ray. So we see Leia definitely learning from those, but also kind of being able to relate um, Ray to, uh, to Ben and sensing the darkness in them both. Here in the novelization, we don't get any sense yet that that Leia knows who Rey really is, that she's the granddaughter of Palpatine. They don't approach that here, but we definitely get hints of it that, you know, you can't get in a movie um, because we're, we're seeing what, Le what Leia's thoughts are. And in her thoughts, we definitely see that she knows that there's darkness there. The last thing in this chapter that's really important is Leia's, um, I mean, Ray's vision um, of, of she sees Kylo on Mustafar pursuing the Wayfinder. Then she hears the Emperor saying, you know, that basically that he's on Exegol. Um, Ray feels herself being drawn to, um, drawn to Palpatine's throne and says, you know, I've already chosen a different path, haven't I? Like kind of wondering why she still would feel the pull to something like this. She also says something interesting about the Emperor, who she doesn't recognize as the Emperor yet, um, but she says that, you know, what she saw in the vision was part machine and part man, which obviously is a, an echo of what we heard about Vader um, in the original trilogy, starting with Obi-Wan saying that. Um, and she kind of exits this vision and, and recognizes it as being flashes from her memories and flashes from Kylo's memories. And she's scared that she would be seeing Kylo's memories and wondering how that could happen. Um, she doesn't seem to realize that this is like as literal as something that just happened or is happening right now to Kylo. Um, she doesn't take it that literally uh, and she sees it more as being a, a vision. Um, and she struggles with how much to tell Leia about this, um, not wanting to kind of have Leia know um, particularly that it was in a moment of frustration, you know, just as we see in the movie while she's trying to defeat this train robot. Um, she's angry and in that rage, that's when she gets the vision. And so I think that's what she's afraid to tell Leia is that, you know, basically she's not in control of her anger like she should be. 
So that's pretty much um, the section exploring all of Rey and Leia's relationship and their training. I think it was really wonderful. Um, as someone who is a huge fan of Leia, you know, you really get to delve into more of, of her story here in a way that they couldn't do on screen, both because of, you know, limits of of filmmaking in general, but especially because Carrie Fisher had passed away. We do get some of Leia's um, same like catchphrases that they used in the film, um, like never underestimate a droid, nothing's impossible, don't tell me what it looks like, tell me what it is. Um, you know, those few little kind of canned lines uh, do get thrown in here, but they have much more context because we're able to add lines and we're able to hear Leia's thoughts in a way that they couldn't do in the movie. Um, so I'm going to take a quick break and then I want to come back and talk about Kylo and the Emperor. So the next thing that we get a ton of new details on with the novelization is Kylo and the Emperor and kind of Kylo's journey to Exegol to meet the Emperor. A lot of this had been um, shared previously in a post that, that StarWars.com released um, with an excerpt from the book, and some of it had been leaked, but I still found myself learning a lot in this chapter um, and, you know, finding there to be a lot of new information to enjoy um, with this new context. Like, I also want to point out that the first two chapters of the book are like, you know, I'm listening to it on audiobook, and they're um, about 35 minutes long each. And it's a long movie with a lot of plot points, and the audiobook is only like nine and a half hours, so they're spending a lot of time up front going into like the details of these characters and how Rey and Kylo's journeys each begin, and uh, I'm kind of wondering what the rest of the book will be like since they're spending so much time here at the beginning on these topics, and there's a lot of movie to get through, and they apparently do it in a pretty short amount of book. Anyway, that's just a side note. Um, when we see Kylo kind of arriving on Mustafar, um, he goes, you know, to the the grove that we see in the film, um, filled with trees, and starts cutting down cultists. Um, it's interesting because having played the Vader Immortal video game, um, which I definitely plan to cover in a future podcast, we see without spoiling that game, um, which is on uh, Oculus Quest. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, um, but the the book does explore why Mustafar is the way that it is, and it ends with like a little bit of hope that maybe there'll be life back there someday, and that's kind of where I think we're supposed to assume that these trees come from, um, and again, I won't spoil anything, but if you play the video game, you'll kind of understand why, um, and it, it's interesting here because Kylo says that, you know, the the people who he's cutting down are there um, because they were obsessed with Vader and they want to kind of protect his legacy. And that's just so the opposite of what we see in Vader Immortal, where like the life forms that are there on Mustafar are definitely not fans of Darth Vader. So I wonder when these people arrived there. They also... Um, are ref referred to specifically here as cultists, um, which makes me wonder, you know, are these like a direct offshoot of the Sith Eternal who are there to guard this secret? And if so, like maybe they arrived pretty recently um, because, you know, they didn't need to be there when when Vader um, was present, kind of protecting his own secrets, and maybe they showed up afterwards. Um, it's interesting in general, like there are so many unanswered questions from the movie that the book doesn't answer. Like why keep this device there on Mustafar <laughs> like after Vader is gone you know why wouldn't they have taken it somewhere else um you know why 
why kind of keep it there at the site of his old castle not even in the castle but like down into the you know in the forest below I mean it really doesn't make a lot of sense and maybe we just have to accept that or maybe that'll be explored someday um anyway another funny thing is that you know Kylo kind of um is almost admiring how inhospitable to life this place is and yet there are beings that live there and he kind of says like no wonder vader picked this place to live it's funny to me how little kylo knows about vader and vader's story and like and having no idea that this was the site of vader's biggest defeat and that part of his reason for being there was the emperor you know trying to humiliate him by having his fortress be located there and of course the other reason could be the the ancient temple and stuff that gets explored in the video game. Anyway, we do get to have a little bit of a peek at the creature that had been teased in the excerpt of the book that uh, StarWars.com had published. Um, it's kind of a, you know, a, a dual life form. It's some kind of a giant being with a spider attached to it, and the spider is speaking and controlling the other being. It's definitely interesting. Um, it sounds like they had uh, developed this creature based on um, the original script for episode nine, and that this was going to be like one of the main characters from the movie who teaches Kylo um, about uh, new force powers and kind of sucking the life out of people. Um, and instead we got Palpatine as kind of that main character, but it sounded to me like that's where this this guy came from, that they had already done the concept art and developed it. And, um, you know, so that they, they kind of used that idea here. Um, I don't think that they ever filmed anything with it. Um, I, I haven't watched the, um, behind the scenes movie yet for Rise of Skywalker because I ordered it on, on Blu-ray and it won't come in for another two weeks. I know that there's been some shots of like Hux, um, and Admiral Pride um, on Mustafar, and that is discussed on the book. Like, we do see in the book the two of them standing around. So maybe there's, um, you know, maybe they did film something with this creature and they decided not to use it. Um, there's no deleted scenes yet for the movies, so we really don't know exactly what they've deleted that we didn't get to see. But in any case, here, we only get a little peek at this guy. Um, he doesn't have a particularly important role. Um, he very easily gives up the Wayfinder, which Kylo kind of wonders like why are they giving this up so easily like he had to fight through the cultists but they were really easy to kill he arrives at this really bizarre creature and the creature pretty much gives him the wayfinder um, and he says it will lead him um, to Exegol and to quote unquote him and Kylo still kind of doubts that the him is Palpatine but it's clear that the creature knows that which is what makes me think that you know the they're really there specifically um, as part of the Sith Eternal to intentionally lead Kylo out there, which all makes sense with what we've seen in the movie. The only explanation that Kylo has is that maybe it was easy for him because he's Vader's heir, and they, they know this, um, even though it's not like it's public information, um, but that they know that, and um, that's why they kind of give it up so easily to him. Kylo does talk um, quite a bit about the Unknown Regions and gives us some interesting information on that. Um, he says that only very desperate people travel out to the Unknown Regions because it's so dangerous. So, you know, maybe some um, people running from the law might try to escape out to there, um, but that's about it. Um, it definitely doesn't sound like Kylo Ren has been to the Unknown Regions from this discussion, which is interesting because 
at the point where where Ben Solo falls and he becomes Kylo Ren, and he goes off and becomes the leader of the Knights of Ren, um, you know, he's part of the First Order at that point. I mean, at least informally. He doesn't know what the First Order even is, but he's accepting that he's, like, following Snoke. So... It, it, I don't know at what point the First Order kind of emerges from the unknown regions and comes back out into the known galaxy, and at what point Kylo Ren like officially becomes part of their hierarchy. So that's all really interesting, but it definitely doesn't sound like Kylo has ever been out there himself. He knows that that's where the, um, the Imperial Remnant had escaped to, um, and he also mentions that there are other planets that had been, you know, discovered over the years, um, but that they had very low population populations and that trading with them was really difficult. One thing that he mentions that's very interesting and could tie into the New High Republic era is um, talking about how the Sith and Jedi both had discovered planets out in the Unknown Regions and they were both very closely guarded secrets. Um, So for Sith, obviously, Exegol is, you know, probably the big one and who knows what other planets they've found out there. For the Jedi, um, you know, I mean, I think that Octo is considered in the Unknown Regions and was uncharted. But, you know, what other planets could there be out there that the Jedi, um, you know, had found and were aware of that maybe um, had been discovered during the High Republic era? Maybe were outposts during that time, like we've seen other outposts come up already. Um you know, and, and maybe they were lost either because of the, the event that happens in, in the beginning of the, you know, the High Republic storytelling where there's this great catastrophe and um, hyperspace travel has changed. Um, or maybe it's just that as the Jedi Order kind of began its descent from its height, that those secrets were kind of lost. Um, maybe that's something that we'll, we'll come to find out. But definitely, I mentioned a while ago that I would love to see the Unknown Regions come up in the High Republic um, period. I would love to see Exegol come up, um, maybe as, you know, somewhere where the Sith are kind of in hiding, pulling the strings from some of what we see um, in the main conflict that's going to play out in the High Republic. Uh, That would all be really interesting. And just learning more about the Unknown Regions. We're also going to get more about the Unknown Regions in the new Thrawn trilogy that's going to be starting now in the fall. Um, that's a prequel to the Thrawn trilogy that already has come out, and that's going to look at Thrawn's time with the Chiss. Um, and maybe we'll learn more about the Unknown Regions then. I mean, we definitely will, because that's where it'll take place. I just don't know how much it'll connect back to the galaxy that we know as being, you know, the Star Wars galaxy, and whether it's going to uh, take place exclusively out there, or whether there will be some travel who knows? But definitely it was cool to see um, some discussion here in this novelization about the Unknown Regions and get definitely more information than we got in the movie about that. Once Kylo arrives on Exegol, he very quickly realizes that it was Palpatine who had been talking to him throughout the years. Like, even before Palpatine gives his line of, I've been every voice you've heard inside your head, he recognizes that um that it was Palpatine from the start. And Palpatine even calls himself, you know, he says, I was your master all along, which is even a stronger statement, I think, than we get in the movie, as far as Palpatine kind of asserting that, you know, he's really been um, Kylo's mentor, unknown to him, all of these years. It's funny because Kylo is, like, definitely... um, a know-it-all in this scene. Like, first of all, as soon as he hears Palpatine, he's like, oh, this is the guy that I've been hearing in my head all this time. 
Second, he sees Palpatine wearing the big harness that he comes down on, and he recognizes this as an omen harness that had been previously used by a Sith king, which sounds really cool. Um, he ha- he says that, you know, while he had been searching for the Wayfinder, he, I guess, had been looking through a lot of historical Sith documents um, and had seen, you know, an image of this and recognized it. So he knew what the harness was. He also recognizes the vials that are pumping Palpatine flu of liquids as being clone technology. So he's like clearly a great study of history and already knows like what all of these things are, um, which is very interesting since none of us watching the movie had any idea what they were. Um, the cloning thing, of course, has come out and, you know, it got leaked that Palpatine was a clone and a lot of fans had a negative reaction to that. I think it really makes sense. I mean, how else would he have come back? Um, it makes sense that it would be some combination of like dark side magic and, um, technology. And to me, it's really perfect circle, like going back to the clone wars and the prequels and thinking about how, you know, clones were such an important part of Palpatine's, um, overthrowing of the Jedi that, you know, he would have been interested in using that technology and would have known about it and probably studied it a lot. Um, so it really makes sense. And I think just in terms of completing the the trilogy, um, the three trilogies and completing the saga, it's kind of a nice callback to the prequels that, you know, that this cloning technology has come back again. Anyway, Kylo recognizes Palpatine as being incredibly powerful, even though his form is weak. It's clear that this physical form isn't going to last much longer. Um, And, you know, right now in this point in the book, we don't know um, how that's going to change and what the other options are for Palpatine. Um, But Kylo definitely recognizes the physical form as being very frail and the force form being incredibly powerful. Palpatine tells Kylo that if Rey survives um, and doesn't turn to the dark side, the First Order is going to fall, and Kylo seems to know this true. It's interesting because Palpatine um, says here in the book that Rey may be ready to turn to the dark side now um, because, you know, she's questioning who she is. In the movie, he pretty clearly says, kill the girl. He wants Rey dead. Here, he seems very open to her falling to the dark side instead. So definitely we get a more nuanced um, look at that here in the book. And maybe that helps or will help as I continue in the book to clear up some of the weirdness from the movie where it was like, why did Palpatine send out Kylo Ren to kill her and then later says you know oh I wanted you here the whole time like it was unclear who he really wanted to win did he send Kylo out knowing Kylo was going to fail or did he really want Kylo to kill Rey and when Rey showed up he said okay well I can still salvage this and make this work Um, so maybe the book will address that a little bit more and here it's definitely seems clear that Palpatine is open to the idea of Rey joining them in the dark side and the kind of last little piece of information that we get here um which clears up another uh, inconsistency between Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker is that Kylo says flat out that um, he, and not says, but thinks in his head that he wasn't lying to Rey when he said that her parents were nobody. But as Palpatine is talking to him and says that Rey's questioning who she is, Kylo says, um, you know, or thinks that the force vision that he saw of her parents as paupers, you know, that could have been misleading as force visions often are. So definitely we get confirmation here that Kylo did not intentionally lie to Rey when he said that uh, her parents were nobody and recognizes that that could have, you know, that could have been a misleading vision. 
So that's just the first two chapters of the book. There really is a lot to kind of unpack and explore and discuss. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the book and continuing to discuss it on future episodes of the podcast. Like I said, I also know that they're not going to continue in this level of detail because, you know, the, the book is pretty short for, uh, for a book, um, a Star Wars novel, and they've spent this much time just in the first couple scenes of the movie. So I think that a lot of the, the later parts, especially the action scenes and whatnot, you know, they're not going to have as much detail as this does. But for me, it's, you know, just these first few chapters have made listening to the audiobook worth it. Um, like I said, I've already listened through twice to try to get all of the details because you really do get to see these relationships um, and how these characters relate to each other, what they're thinking and going through in a way that you can never have um, on screen. So I would recommend that you grab the audiobook or um, the, the actual book if you haven't already. Um, and uh, on next week's um, podcast on Monday, I will continue to delve into the details. Thanks so much for listening and stay well.